Hey, yesterday was a day of celebration here in our church family, um, and I had a picture I was going to throw it up. I forgot to throw it into the, the computer this morning, but yesterday I got a chance to drive down to Campbellsville to officiate Justin and Jada Burton now, their wedding. Super awesome. They are, they are headed out this, this morning, this afternoon um, for their honeymoon, but it's just super cool. I, just was, I was sitting there yesterday just watching the two of them, and just what, what happens when like two two of God's kids who love him find each other and love each other. It's just a cool thing. So I had this like big dumb grin on my face the whole afternoon, like this is the best. So super cool. You all can keep them in your prayers as they head off uh, on their honeymoon. They'll be back um, this time, hopefully by next, by next week, if they come back, right? It could be, we're just going to stay in Florida. Um, I wouldn't blame them, right? It doesn't snow in the middle of March down there. All right. So let's, uh, let's pray. And then we will dive in this morning. Jesus, you are good. And we pray this morning that you would open our hearts and our eyes and our ears to your truth. Uh, that, that this whole idea, this thing called the church, that you thought up, that was your idea. A group of people who are chosen and called out by you to get together, to, to worship together, to cheer each other on, to encourage one another, and ultimately to take this gospel from one end of the earth to the other. For every person to hear your truth, for every person to hear about your grace, for every person to hear about your mercy and about the freedom that we find in you. Uh, the church was not meant to sit still, uh, but the church was meant to be people that as we go, we make disciples, we make disciples, we make disciples. And so, Jesus, I pray this morning as we uh, begin to kind of land the plane on this, 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 this book of the Bible that we've been in for the last few months, uh, Lord, that we walk out of this place different. Uh, we walk out of this place because we're empowered by your Holy Spirit. We walk out of this place because we had a chance to bump into you this morning. So we say thanks for meeting us here. And like just Sarah just said, thanks for allowing us to come as we are. But, but Lord, more than anything, thanks for not leaving us there. Uh, so Jesus, we pray all this in your name. Everybody said? All right. So I grew up in a home where um, my father, you guys, are, you guys know this because he plays in the worship band, was a piano player. Um, so I grew up in a home where uh, we took, started, I started taking piano when I was four years old. And so classical music was something that was kind of on and around in our house. It wasn't what we listened to all the time. Like what we listened to was like this weird mashup of Motown and Johnny Cash, um, which that's kind of why I am the way I am. So, but, but again, one of those things we used to listen to and things that we used to practice and things I learned how to play on the piano were symphonies, right? If you've ever heard of a symphony, symphony is, is kind of classical music. It's arranged in a specific way. But in symphonies, in this kind of large, sprawling kind of, work of musical art, there are these smaller sections called movements. And so this book of Romans that we have been in for the last few months is a lot like a symphony. It's this big, huge, kind of massive truth that, that's, that's, that spans 16 chapters, but as you know, like we've been talking about this for almost six months now at this point, there's a lot of information, there's a lot of content in Romans that applies to our lives, that, that changes our lives, quite honestly. But in Romans, there are also four movements, right? There's kind of, it's kind of broken down into four different parts. The whole thing, right, including the little subtle nuances, right, all of these different movements, they're all rooted in one thing. The entire, the entire letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, people just like us who are trying to figure out how to do the with God life, how to do that together in spite of all of their differences, it's all rooted in one thing, the gospel, and the gospel, we've, we've talked about this, is this word euangelion. It's this Greek word euangelion that literally means this. It's an announcement or a proclamation. And in this case, it's an announcement or proclamation that changes the fabric of reality for anyone. You hear about Jesus. You hear about what the opportunities that are offered to us through faith in Jesus. It changes the very fabric of reality in our lives. Everything changes because of the gospel. But the cool part of Romans, the four different movements in Romans, takes a look at the gospel from like a unique angle and perspective. 
And as a result, each movement in Romans causes us to kind of look at ourselves in light of the gospel from different and unique perspectives. It causes us to look at other believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ, people in the church, from from different angles and perspectives. It causes us to look at the world around us, people that don't know Jesus, governments, authorities, things like that, in light of the gospel from unique and different perspectives. And so what I want to do as we begin to kind of land the plane, there's just a few more weeks that we're going to be in Romans. So what I want to do is I just want to give you kind of a quick flyby of what these movements are. So like movement number one in this symphony that is Romans is chapters one through four. So first four chapters of the book of Romans, it's all about how the gospel reveals God's righteousness and our brokenness. The gospel does two things. It sheds the light on God's righteousness, how right and good he is. And at the same time that we see how right and good God is, we see how broken we are. Those two things happen at the exact same time. Right, And all of that has happened because of sin. And, and Romans tells us in this first movement, everybody has sinned. Every single person at one point in their lives has suppressed the truth of God. We've looked at God and said, we're going to de-God God. God, I, I know you are who you say you are, and, and, and maybe you're good, but I think I can do life better than you, God, so why don't you get out of my way and let me run my own life. That's called sin. We've all suppressed that truth. And at the same time, As we're suppressing the truth of God, we're holding the truth of God underwater, right? At the same time, every single person has been given enough evidence in creation alone. Just looking in creation. Everyone has been given enough evidence that God is real and that God is good. And so the first movement of Romans puts two deals on the table. You can live with God now. Right? So we, when we talk about eternal life, a lot of us think of like, you know, the gospel is just kind of this eternal retirement plan. It's like, I'm just going to get this thing settled so that when I die, my, my eternity is, is good to go, right? It's not like that. Eternal life happens now. It starts now. We begin to live a different way now. The with God life happens now. So the first deal on the table is this. You can live the with God life now and forever by his, by, by, by his perfect grace through faith in Jesus, But that means you have to put God in charge of your life. Jesus is your Lord and Savior. He's both, not one or the other. So that's what it means to accept this deal is to say, Jesus, you are my Savior. You have saved my life, but you also are my Lord. You're in charge of my life. I live my life for you. That's what it looks like to accept that first deal. Now, here's the thing. The second deal says you can live without him now, which also means you'll live without him forever. So you can be in charge of your own life. You can run your own life. You can take that deal. I want to run my own life. I think I can do this better than God can. But here's the thing. Living without God now means you'll live without him forever, right, separated from him forever. So that's kind of movement one, establishes this baseline. And then movement two was chapters five through eight. And this was all about us seeing and understanding how the gospel extends this invitation from God to us. And and through faith in Jesus, we are invited not only to a new way to live, but a whole new way to be human with no condemnation. Like we are renovated, we are restored, we are reconciled, we are renewed, we are filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus changes everything about everything. That's the truth. Jesus changes everything about everything, your past, your present, and your future. That's what we learned in the second movement of the Symphony of Romans. Now, the third movement was chapters 9 through 11. Now, you may remember this because it wasn't that long ago. But again, it showed us a different perspective of the gospel. And what it did is it shined a spotlight. Chapters 9 through 11 turned the light on, shined the spotlight on our attitudes and our level of care of concern for the people in our lives that are lost. When we say lost, these are people who are going through life without a relationship with Jesus. They're trying to do it on their own. And what we learned in these chapters is how we respond. 
How do we respond to people in our lives that are lost? How do we care for people in our lives who are lost? Who's ultimately responsible for saving them, right? It's not us. It's not us. We got nothing to lose here, right? We're not responsible for anybody's eternity. God is the only one who's big enough to handle that. Who's responsible for saving them? And how, how do we deal with the discouragement when we get rejected? Because the bottom line is the gospel, the gospel tells us this, that we run to the lost, not away from them. So that was that third movement in the symphony of Romans. And now we're in movement four, right? The last one, chapters 12 through 16. And it basically says this, in light of everything that we've unpacked in these previous movements, here's what the Christian life looks like and here's why it matters. The Christian life looks different. Why? Because the gospel is at stake. The gospel's at stake. And so what we've been saying kind of in this fourth movement is this. The Christian life looks different because our relationship with God through the blessing of grace and mercy in the gospel changes everything. It changes our relationship with ourselves. It changes how we serve in the church. It changes how we respond to our enemies. It changes how we engage the culture and world around us and how we care for one another. And last week, we kind of started this conversation of how do we protect and promote unity in our community? The gospel allows us to do that. The gospel sets, it levels the playing field. It it sets us all with one thing in common, and that is we are desperately in need of a Savior, and his name is Jesus. So how do we protect that? How do we protect unity? How do we promote unity in community? Again, because the reason for this is also that that the gospel, that we can be unified that the church can be unified in spreading and sharing the gospel with our lives and with our lips. That's what this is all about. The way that we live, people see a difference in us. The story, our life story that we share, people hear a difference in that. And so last week, what we did, just a quick catch up, quick flyby, is we focused in on how we protect as a community, how we protect unity, and it all starts with our hearts. It all starts on the inside. And we said this, our attitudes, which are the conditions of and the conditions that exist in our hearts. Our attitudes inform and determine our actions, which is what we do towards others, right? So it all starts in the heart. And some of us, we talked about last week, is some of us, we might be stronger in our faith than others. Some of us might be newer to this whole Jesus thing, and we're just not as strong. We're, just, we're figuring it out. We're learning how to walk. But our attitudes, regardless of where you are, our attitudes towards one another will determine our actions. And those actions, those attitudes, ultimately are the difference between helping a brother or sister in Christ or harming a brother and sister in Christ, intentionally or unintentionally. But in the end, the focus, right, we talked about this last week, the focus is not on these secondary areas or issues that ultimately when it comes to church are matters of opinion, like music style, things like that. That's a secondary issue. That's a matter of opinion. Some of us like different music, some of us don't. Some of us like different instruments, some of us don't. That's a matter of opinion. And then we could differ in those things, but where we can't differ is on the primary issues, right? The things, the core parts of our faith, right? That Jesus is the Son of God, that God created all of this. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit still is moving and working in us, that the Scripture, the Bible is inerrant, it is perfect, it's what we need, right? It is our, it is our authority. Those are things we can't waver on. Those are things that, that ultimately, at the end of the day, we've got to build ourselves on that. Because here's what happens. For us, we said, we said this last week, again, just to catch you up, to protect and promote unity in the church, it starts with our attitudes towards one another. And here's what we have to remember. Despite all of our differences, we share a common, that in Jesus, we share a common welcome, we share a common Lord, we share a common bond through the Holy Spirit, we share a common judge, and we share a common Savior, despite all of the differences. Again, 
How many other people are in this room? That's how many opinions and thoughts are in this room. Some of us have similar ones. That's how many different upbringings and backgrounds and traditions and experiences with church that we have. Again, some of us have some similar things, but a lot of us were different. So how do we set aside those differences to unite around these things that we have in common, right? Those primary essentials are, are things, those primary essential issues are built in truth. The truth of what we find in scripture. Those secondary issues, they are matters of opinion, right? And we can differ in those opinions. But here's the deal. Instead of abandoning community or dividing community, what we do is we care for one another in the midst of our differences. That's how we protect unity in the church. We protect unity when we act out of a place of understanding, care, and compassion for others above ourselves, right? So that just kind of catches you up because that was part one yesterday or last week was part one. This week is part two. So I just kind of want to give you like the previously on Romans, right? So now we get to, to move forward. So now we turn the page. If you've got your Bibles out, you've got your Bibles with you or a Bible app, turn to Romans chapter 15. We're going to be in Romans 15 today, first half of Romans 15. So if you need a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we've got Bibles in the back. They are free. You can have them. You can take them home with you. Uh, they are yours. But if you've got your Bibles out or your Bible app, turn to Romans 15. Here's what it says. Paul, continuing this kind of thought from last week, he says, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ didn't please himself, but as it's written, the insults, he says this, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. So we make the shift this week. From last week, we talked about what it looks like to protect unity in our church. This week, we're going to talk about what it means to promote it, right? So one is, one is kind of defending, and the other is like offense, right? right? We're, we talked about defense. Today, we're going to talk about offense. How do we promote this? So let's unpack these three verses together, right? We've already established from last week that there are two different kinds of people that's, that, that Paul's talking about. Now, just so you know, if you weren't here, here's who they are. The strong, and these are people, like it says, with, with a better grasp on living the with God life. They've been doing it longer Right? They've got a little more experience in their relationship with God through Christ. And so Paul refers to them as people who are strong. In, this, in, this, in these verses, he identifies himself with them. He says, we who are. Right, So that's who the strong are. The weak are those who are newer to this whole with God life, the Jesus thing, the church thing. And, and maybe they're still hanging on to some of the rhythm, rhythms and habits of the old life. Right, Those things are still kind of hanging around. That's what when Paul talks about the strong and the weak, that's who he's talking about. And he's shown us, what he's shown us already is how to adjust our heart towards people who are weaker than us, right? And if we are those people who are weaker, he's shown us how to adjust our hearts to the people that are stronger. Instead of judging them, right, we lean into them. For those who are stronger, instead of despising the weak, like you weakling, right, instead of despising them, we, we, we put our arms around them, we lift them up, right? That's what we do. So he shifted our hearts. Now he's going to talk about our hands, right, the actions that we, that we perform, the things that we do. And the first thing that we see in, in, this, in chapter 15 is that we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. And he says not to please ourselves. Well, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to bear with the failings of the weak and not please myself in the process, right? Not to please myself. It's not about me, right? What does that look like? So, so again, I want us to wrap our brains around this. We've got to take this apart first. We've got to take these three verses apart, and then we'll, we'll, we'll put them back together, right? So we're going to kind of reverse engineer this. What, when Paul says, we who are strong, and uses, like, ought to, right? Usually when someone tells you something that you ought to do, it's a recommendation, Right? 
Like when you seek advice from someone, hey, I need, to, I need your advice. Here's what's going on in my life. Like here's what I'm dealing with. Here's something I'm trying to do. So, well, here's what you ought to do, right? If I were you, this is what you ought to do. Like I'm working, <laughs> I'm working on a project underneath my deck to reinforce my deck. Um, and so you, it's, I, you, would, you would be surprised. Like you see this project happening. I had electricians at my house the other day, and they're like, well, let, let us tell you what you think. We, here's what you should do, man. Like here's what you ought to do. And I'm like, well, you're an electrician. Electrician, right? I had an, H, had an HVAC guy at my house a couple weeks ago too, and he's looking at it going, Oh, yeah, like here's how you should do this. There's no shortage of you ought to's, you shoulds, and opinions based on what we think. But here's the deal this is not a recommendation. What Paul is saying when he says we ought to bear with the failings of the weak, it's not a recommendation. Here's what this word means, right? This word ought that Paul uses on one hand is a military term, it's a military term that means to fulfill one, one's duty, but it has a second definition. The second definition is a financial term. It's a financial word that means to pay off a debt that you owe, right? So when we read this word ought to, when it comes to bearing with the failings of the weak, it's more than just a recommendation. It's an expectation. When Paul says this is something you ought to do, he's not saying think about it, chew on it, think it over, get back to me. He's going, no, 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 this is an expectation. This is what you need to do. Well, what is it then that we ought to do? What does Paul say we ought to do? He says, bear with the failings of the weak. And again, this word bear doesn't mean to tolerate or make allowances for, which I think is usually kind of what we do. When we say things like, hey, bear with me, it's like, just tolerate me for a minute, all right? Allow me to do what I need to do or say what I need to say for a minute, right? That's not what we're talking about when we talk about this bear in this case, right? To bear in this case means this, to carry the full weight of something or someone. It literally means to put someone on your shoulders and carry them. Now, you all may have seen a few years ago the movie Hacksaw Ridge. It tells the story of Desmond Doss. Desmond Doss was the first conscientious objector, right, in World War II. And this was a guy who said, because of my faith, I'm not going to pick up a weapon. I will not take a life. And he's in the army in the middle of a war. He said, I'm not going to do it. And so people made fun of him, and, and people, they, they, he went to a military trial. They tried to court-martial him. They tried to do all these kinds of, he lost the respect of his unit. And if you know the story of Desmond Doss, what happened is a true story, Hacksaw Ridge. The, 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 the army was trying to take this ridge, right, and the Navy had shelled these, these, these uh, stations where the enemy were. And, and so they thought, well, we could just go up there. Well, the enemy was hiding. So as the soldiers crest the ridge, they get shot. They get wounded. And Desmond Doss is up there, a guy that won't fire a weapon. And so what does Desmond Doss do is he proceeds over the next several days of this operation to save 75 wounded men by putting them on his back, by carrying them down a rope, down the, down the wall of a cliff so that they could get to safety. It's an amazing movie. It's, 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 it's rated R, right? So it's, got, it's kind of gory. So if you, if you don't, can't stomach that, but it's a, pre, it's a pretty incredible story. And the cool thing is, in the, in the movie at least, you know, because he's, he's a man of faith, and as he's, as he's sitting there listening to the cries of soldiers, his prayer was this, God, just let me get one more. God, please help me save one more. God, just let me save one more and one more and one more. And he kept going back in and back in and back in with no weapon, no way to defend himself and carried out 75 wounded soldiers. That's what we're talking about. When we talk about what does it mean to bear with the failings of the weak, it means to literally put someone who is wounded or hurt on your back and carry them to safety. That's what we're talking about. One author puts it like this. It says, what's called here, what is called for here in bearing with the weak is not about mere compliance with the wishes of others. It's rather a determined adjustment to whatever will, cont will contribute to the spiritual good of another person. 
And I love that. I love the way that, that, that this person kind of breaks this down. It is, I love that idea. It's a determined adjustment to whatever will contribute to the spiritual good of another person. How determined are we for that? And when you think about the people in your life, you think about people that you come into ch- to church with, you think about your neighbors, how determined are you to adjust yourself to do what's necessary for their spiritual good versus how determined are you for them to adjust themselves for your spiritual good? Think about that for a second. That's what we're talking about here, what it means to bear with the failings of the weak. Think about it like this. It was worth, Jesus, it, was worth it for Jesus to die for this person. And if it's worth it for Jesus to die for that person, then it could be worth it for us to help them grow in their relationship with him. That's the kind of perspective we're talking about here. If it was worth it for Jesus to give his life up for them, it can be worth it to you and me to give our time to them. Now, will it be easy? No. Will it cost you? Yes. What's it going to cost me? Well, it might cost you time. It might cost you your time. It might cost you your status. It might cost you some influence. If it happened to Jesus, I mean, people look at Jesus all the time and say, why are you spending time with them? Why are you wasting your time on them? How come you're doing this with them? It might cost you the same thing. It might cost you the influence and that status. But is it worth it? Absolutely. It is worth it to bear with, to carry those who are weaker, those who are newer, those who are wounded, those who are hurt. It is worth it. And here's the thing. Jesus didn't see people with weaker faith as liabilities. He saw them as disciples. And we have to do the same. Think about the people Jesus chose to follow him. Fisherman, tax collector, a domestic terrorist, right? Those are the people that, that Jesus like, come follow me, guys. We're going to make this group. Not the people. It was not, this was not the varsity team, right? This was, this was the, the JV at best, right? But again, it's, it's worth it. Jesus didn't look at people with weaker faith as liabilities. He saw them as disciples. And Paul says we've got to do the same. We have to do the same. And Paul says we do this not to please ourselves. We're not looking for the pat on the back. We're not looking for the reward. We're not looking for the recognition. We're not looking for like our own footsteps poem. You know, you know what I'm talking about, the footsteps in the sand poem, where it's like you're talking with the person you're discipling, and they're like, well, why, Brad? Is there only one set of footprints? And it's like, well, there, that's when I carried you, Right? You're not, looking, you're not looking to create your own footsteps in the sand poem with this person, right? Promoting unity in the church, right? It begins with us helping the people in our lives to grow in their faith, to grow stronger in their relationship with Jesus. That's how we promote, that's how we go on offense. That's how we go on offense when it comes to promoting and growing unity in the church, it means that we help the people in our lives to grow in their relationship with Jesus, to grow in their faith. And the more unified and united as a church we are in that, the more unity we will experience in our community. And this is something that Paul says, listen, you've got to take personal responsibility for this. And he quotes Psalm 69.9. He says, listen, the insults of them fell on me. The insults of you fell on me. When someone who is acting in and of their weakness insults God or makes a mistake in the place of being uninformed or being un- not, of lack of understanding, we, we feel that insult too. When someone that we're discipling messes up and sins in a, really, in a, in a way, we feel that. It's not just, a, oh, yeah, well, that's them. I was thinking about this. Like I had a friend in high school. See, I came to Jesus late in high school. It was my junior, senior year when I decided to put my faith in Jesus. And I remember everything changed in that moment. And so I had a friend who I was sharing Jesus with. And we had some really good conversations, and he was almost there, and he was ready to make that decision for Christ. And, and I can remember he slipped up. He made a mistake, kind of fell back into some of the old things that we were into, right? And I can remember in that moment, like, 
gosh, like you were almost there. You were almost there and you fell back into this. You were almost out of that world. And here's the thing, I can remember praying, like, I want something so much better for you. And I want you to see that there is something so much better for you. When Paul says, we feel those insults, we feel, we feel the failings of the people that we're discipling, that's what it looks like. It's, ah, I still love you. I'm not giving up on you. I want something so much better for you. I want you to see that there is something so much better for you in Jesus. We feel it. It's not a passive thing. So when we put all of this together, when we put these first three verses together, here's what it looks like. When it comes to promoting unity, going on offense, when it comes to unity in the church, it begins with us who believe in Jesus, those who are stronger in their faith, taking a personal responsibility and taking the initiative to help others grow in their relationship with Jesus. That's what it takes. It's our duty, right? That's what Paul would say. It's our duty, and we owe it to our community as a whole to help carry those who are not as strong so that they can do the same one day for someone else. There's a great commercial, and I, if I had it queued up, I would show it. But there's a commercial that I used to show at all of my volunteer trainings. It was a commercial that was in the Super Bowl probably six or eight years ago. It's a Dodge truck commercial. It's the whole Paul Harvey, so God made a farmer. Maybe you've heard this. Go Google it later. Go watch it because I get, like, you get a little misty. Like It gets a little dusty in the room when you start watching this commercial. But it's talking about this. It's talking about what it means to step into messy places. It's talking about what it means to literally put something or someone on your back, right? And he keeps saying, so God made a farmer. God made a farmer who would be strong and at the same time sensitive. God made a farmer who could splint the broken leg of a bird, but at the same time, like, re-shoe a horse with a hunk of car tire, right? He's going through all these different things. And I love that at the end, he gets to this point where he says that God made a farmer, right, so that when the farmer's son looks at his dad and says, I want to do what dad does. That's what we're talking about here. That we go on offense, we promote unity, when we who are stronger are willing to carry the weak, that we take their relationship with Jesus personal. We want to see them grow. Because one day, they'll be able to do the same for somebody else. And that's what it looks like. And you might be thinking, like, Brad, this, this sounds like a lot of hard work. And it is. It absolutely is. It's hard work. It's hard work investing in people. The running joke in ministry is always this. Ministry would be really easy if it weren't for people. People are difficult. People are hard. People make mistakes. People let you down. People disappoint you. People don't live up to expectations. But at the same time, at the same time, the moment that you sit with someone and you see it click, they believe in Jesus. They believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's done everything that he says he's going to do, that, he's, that he will do everything that he promises. The moment you see that click, it is worth every tear. It's worth every heartache. It's worth every headache. It's worth every frustration. It is worth it. And Paul, he encourages us in verse 4. He says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in scriptures and the encouragement that they provide, we might have hope. He says this, he may praise this prayer, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew it was hard. Paul knew better than anybody that this was difficult. I mean, you're talking about a guy who was shipwrecked, left for dead. You talk about a guy who was beaten, taken out of a city where he was talking about Jesus. Paul was taken out of a city where he was talking about Jesus. He was stoned and beaten and left for dead. And when he didn't die, he got up and went right back into the city to talk about Jesus. 
This is a guy who lost all of his friends, lost all of his family, would, would eventually go on and lose his life. Lose his life for talking about Jesus. And the same governing authority that he talked about a couple weeks ago would be the same governing authority that would cut his head off. And yet, here he is, saying, don't give up. There's encouragement. Where? In Scripture. You can see that there are people just like you and just like me. Bible people aren't Bible people. They're just people people like us. They freak out. They doubt. They wrestle with faith. They make mistakes just like you and I do. I listened to a podcast this week and said that, that people... We need something to center our lives on. For, for students, right, it might be friends or grades, right? If you're, if, you're, if you're a student right now, it might be your friend group and it might be your grades you're kind of centering your life on. For athletes, it might be your stats or, or wins, your record, whatever it is. For parents, it's our kids, whether we want it to be or not, right? Our lives are centered on them. We go where they go. We go where their practices are, all that kind of stuff. Can I get an amen, right? For some of us, it's our jobs, it's our jobs. Our lives are centered on our jobs. For some of it, it's enjoying our retirement. It's enjoying that, that, that phase of life. But here's the thing. This podcast was saying that people, we need something to form the center of our lives so that we can build our lives on it. Why? So that when life gets tough, this is why we need to center our lives and build our lives on something. When life gets tough, we have something to fall back on, something to come back to, to remind us why we're doing what we're doing. Now, let me just say, nothing kills faster than purposelessness. Feeling like you don't have a purpose, feeling like you don't belong, feeling like there's no reason. Like nothing kills the momentum and the spirit and the soul faster than feeling like you don't have a purpose. So how do we know? How do we know right now what our lives are centered on? In this podcast, they said this, if you want to know what you're centering your life on, answer the following questions. What's wrong with the world and what must be done to make it right? Think about that for a second. How would you answer that? Because this will kind of expose and this will reveal what we're centering our lives on. What's wrong with the world right now? It's not one thing, right? We all know that, right? What's wrong with the world and, and, and what must be done to make it right? How you answer these questions, what it does is it reveals kind of what you're centering your life on. It reveals your worldview, when you think about your worldview, that's the lenses that you're using, right, to, to kind of see the world around you, to make sense of the world around you. And so this is what you're trying to center your life on. And most importantly, who or what you've placed your hope in? What's wrong with the world? How you answer that? How do we fix it? However, however you fix that, right, that's what right now what you're placing your hope in. I hope this happens. I hope this occurs because if this happens, it will fix everything that's wrong with the world today. And Paul, he knew better than any of us that promoting unity within the church is hard work. And caring for those who are spiritually weaker is hard work. And the only way, church, the only way we will be successful in promoting unity is by becoming completely and totally centered on God. That's it. That's it. We center our lives on nothing else other than him. Because what's wrong with the world today? Sin. That's what's wrong with the world today. I mean, you could boil it all down to that. That, that, that people and, and, and cultures and, and, and nations and governments, they all look at God and they say, God, we think we could do it better than you. Get out of our way. Let us run this. Don't tell me what's true. I'll come up with my own truth. Don't tell me what, who God is. I'll make up my own God. I will form God in my image so that he follows me around and does what I want to do. That's what's wrong with the world today, sin. What must be done to make it right? Jesus, real simple. Jesus, 
when I look at the world that way, that, that, that helps me to see the brokenness in others. It helps me to meet them where they are. It helps me to see the brokenness that, that happens in our governing authorities. It helps me to see the brokenness in our culture. And instead of getting mad at it, I can run to it the same way that Jesus would. Instead of getting mad at it, I can, I can be willing to sacrifice my time, my effort, my energy, whatever it may be, to meet them where they are. Jesus is the way we make it right. And that tells me what my life is centered on. That tells me what I come back to when things get difficult. It reminds me why I exist. When I center my life on Jesus, the reason I exist is to get people in Jesus in the same room so they can work stuff out, so people can hear about how good he is, so people can hear about the fact that the gospel changes everything. Jesus is the source of everything that we need. Jesus, right, in his word, he tells us where to find encouragement. Jesus tells us how to endure. If you, look, if you look for, church, if you look for encouragement or endurance anywhere else, you'll find what G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton calls this, cures that don't cure, blessings that don't bless, and solutions that don't solve. Outside of Jesus, that's what you're left with. Cures that don't cure, blessings that don't bless, and solutions that don't solve. Paul tells us that if we center our lives on Christ, we'll become like-minded. When we become like-minded, then we have the same mind, we have the same heart, and we have the same voice. I think N.T. Wright puts this really well. This is a long quote, right? So bear with me. Follow it on the screen. He says this, the point of all of this is not simply to live in peace and quiet without squabbling. He said that would simply be clearing the ground of rubble. But the point of all that Paul is talking about here is to build. And what needs to be built is the common life of praise and worship. One mind and one voice go so closely together, describing that glad unanimity of praise and worship, which indicates both to the watching world and to the Christians themselves that they are not worshiping a mere local deity or a projection of their own culture, but instead the one true God of all the world, the Father of Jesus, the Messiah. Get that? That's why we do this. That's why the work is so important, even though it's difficult. Because unity in this community, unity in our body, what it does is it shows the world that God is not just a projection of culture. God is not just some idea we came up with. This is the one true God of all the world, the Father of, of the world, the Father of Jesus Christ author and creator of all things. And we promote, we go on offense, we play offense when it comes to unity by helping each other grow in our relationship with Jesus. We find encouragement and we find endurance in the scripture. We keep going by centering our lives on Jesus and his word. And from then, from there, here's what happens next. In verse seven, Paul says, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant to the Jews on behalf of God's truth. What did Jesus do? He did what God asked him to do. He did exactly what God asked him to do, how God asked him to do it. Jesus served difficult people to the point that they killed him for it. He became a servant to difficult people. Because they didn't like the way that he served, they didn't like the things that he talked about, and they didn't like what he pointed to, they killed him for it. And he goes on, he says, so, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed in the end, Paul says, moreover that the Gentiles, people who are not Jewish, everyone else, that's us, might glorify God for his mercy, right? What, what Jesus did is he fulfilled the law in the Old Testament. 
Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament law, and in doing that, what he did was he blew the doors open, right, so that everyone and anyone who, who decided to believe in him could come into this community of faith. That's what Jesus did. That's the reason that he served the way that he served. That's the reason that he was willing to give up his life. And Paul says, as it's written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with all of his people. Again, he says, praise the Lord, all of you Gentiles. Let, let the people extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse, that's Jesus, will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations, and him the Gentiles will find hope. People will find hope. The world will find hope. See, what we're doing, what we're doing when we talk about unity and promoting unity, going on the offense, right, to promote unity, we find that rooted in the truth of Scripture. This is the essence of the Christian life. The essence of the Christian life is rooted in this. And right, so basically what Paul is saying is get on with it. Live like it. Live like this. And then he finishes with this prayer. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with the hope provided by the Holy Spirit. Church, God is both the origin and he's the object of all of our hope. He's the starting place of hope and he's where we come back to. He is where hope begins and he is where hope ends. And I'll be honest with you, when it comes to God, hope never runs out. Hope never runs out. It never runs dry. And so when we promote unity in the church, when we live the Christian life, it means that we have to abandon false hope. The things that we would center our lives on other than Jesus, we have to let go of those things so that God and God alone becomes the origin and object of every ounce of our hope. We find our hope in him. And that hope is always on tap and that bar is never closed. It never runs out. I love how Eugene Peterson puts this together in the message. He says this, when we live this Christian life, he says, we join with the outsiders in a hymn sing, and we sing to your name. And then there's this one, outsiders and insiders rejoice together. And again, he says, people of all nations celebrate God. All colors and races give hearty praise. And Isaiah's word, there's a root of our ancestor Jesse breaking through the earth and growing tree tall, tall enough for anyone and everyone to worship and to see and to take hope. He says, oh, may the power of God of, may the power of, of, God of hope fill you up with the joy. May he fill you with peace so that your believing lives filled with the life-giving energy of the Holy Spirit will brim over with hope. That's what this is about. When we talk about what it means, what does it mean to live the Christian life, how do we answer that question? This is what the Christian life looks like. You can boil it down to one really simple thing. It's a life of hope. It's a life of hope in the present because we have a hope secured in the future. And what we do in this place is we promote unity in the church by protecting, by, by helping each other grow in our relationship with Jesus. We protect unity in the church by making sure that our hearts and our attitudes are in the right place to meet people where they are. We say that we're willing to carry people no matter what. We're willing to carry each other no matter what it takes. We find encouragement and the endurance to keep going by centering our lives on Jesus, by going back to his word, by anchoring to the rock that has been, is, and will forever be, right? And in hope, Right, through the Holy Spirit, what we become then is a worldwide welcoming family that anyone and everyone can walk through those doors, no matter what they're going through. 
No matter what they're wrestling with or what they're dealing with, anyone and everyone can walk through those doors. And in this place, they will find a family that is built on hope. See, it's not just, this relationship we have is not just with one another, but I gotta be honest with you, church, we are a part of a global movement. Adventure Christian Church in J-Town, 40299, is a part of a global movement, a gospel movement that exists all the way around the world. We don't do what we do here just to do Sunday services, right? It's not just about an hour and a half or two hours on a Sunday. That's not why we do what we do. What we do here is designed to win the world to Jesus. And we do that when we link arms with one another. We do that when we protect unity. We do that when we promote unity. We do that when we defend one another. And we do that when we go on offense to carry one another. So that's my challenge to you, church, today, is as we wrap up the kind of this section of Romans about what it looks like to live the Christian life. It's a life of hope. So what are you building your hope in? What is your life centered on right now? If it's anything other than Jesus, can you change that? Are you willing to give him a shot? If maybe you're stronger, you've been doing this for a while, who can you carry? Who around you needs someone to come beside them and lift them up? Who around you needs someone to come beside them and encourage them, not to shove them further in a hole or make them feel stupid? Who can you say, get on, get on my back? Like Desmond Doss, may our prayer be, God, let me save one more. Let me find one more. Let me get to one more. Let me put one more weary, broken, wounded soul on my back to get them in the same room with you. Just one more. Just one more. I want to pray for us. And this morning, if, if you've never accepted Jesus and you want to accept Jesus into your life, you want to make him Lord and Savior, I would love to meet with you. I'll be down front. If you need prayer this morning, we have got myself, I'll be on this side. Some of our elders will be here, and I think we'll have uh, some elders and maybe their wives in the back as well. So, so ladies, if you prefer to pray with, uh, with another lady and not a guy, you can do that, right? I understand sometimes that, that, that feels more comfortable to do that, right? So that, that opportunity is available. But if you need prayer this morning, find us. We're here. We'll be on both sides. We'll be in the back. We'd love to pray for you. If you want to talk about what it means to make adventure your home, to be a part of this family, to join this family, we'd love to chat with you about that as well. So I'm going to pray for us. We're going to worship together. Jesus, we pray for unity in this church. We pray that we would be a united family centered on the thing that matters the most, and that is you and your gospel. Father, I pray for, for those of us in the room who maybe we've gotten off course. God, may we know that you never give up, that you never stop looking for us, that you never stop hunting us down, that you never stop searching for us, that you do not quit pursuing us. Your call exists today just like it did thousands of years ago. Come to me. Father, there's no one in this room who is too hurt or too broken. There's no one in this room who is a lost cause in your eyes. God, today I pray that those of us who are in that space would, would run to you. I pray that those of us who are, are stronger in our faith, Lord, would find those that need to be carried and we would carry them. No matter the cost, no matter what it takes. And Father, ultimately at the end of the day, we pray that, that, that Adventure Church is a, is a part of this global movement, this gospel movement. And that, Lord, that, that, that anyone that walks in these doors will find a family of broken, messy people leaning on and carrying one another as you carry us. 
Jesus, you're good and we love you. It's going to be pray. Amen.